Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Charlie Munger died just a month shy of his 100th birthday. Warren Buffett's longtime right-hand man was a brilliant investor in his own right, always willing to share his wisdom and incisive wit. Today, we celebrate his life and look to learn from his best one-liners. And in today's dumb question of the week, what is the Lollapalooza effect? All right, let's get into it. So a couple of weeks ago, sadly, Charlie Munger passed away. He was 99. He lived an amazing life. He was a brilliant investor. And I guess it's kind of the end of an era, really. He was one of a kind. How did you feel when you heard the news, Roman? Well, obviously, it's part of the dynamic duo, and it was really sad to hear it. But, you know, I mean, he was an old guy. He'd had good innings, and uh, he'd spread his wisdom far and wide. So I think if you had to rank a life, he certainly achieved a lot during his 99 years. You sound like you're on uh, your last legs yourself today. Yes, unfortunately, my voice is broken again due to a cold, which I might have got from you, Michael, when we first met. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Or my daughter. She was spreading those germs as widely as she could. Ah, children. But the thing with Charlie Munger, he was obviously very prominent, but he was still in Warren Buffett's shadow, wasn't he, really? Which is kind of unusual. And it's interesting. He said himself that usually in other aspects of his life, whenever he was with other people, he was usually the dominant player. But when he was with Warren, he just had to accept he was second fiddle. You know, you can't, you can't co-invest with Warren Buffett and expect to be the top guy. So, you know, I think he realised the power of the partnership and was willing to take that second place as a result. I mean, it worked out pretty well for him. He ended up with, I think, $2.6 billion as his net worth, according to Forbes. But Buffett himself credits Charlie Mungo with a lot of the kind of philosophy that went behind his investing Especially if you go back to the sort of 1960s, Munger was very influential on a mindset shift in Warren Buffett and the kinds of investments he was looking for. So Warren Buffett started off as a disciple of Benjamin Graham, and his entire thesis was that you should buy companies which are cheap. So it's essentially a matter of working out what the fundamental value of a company is, and then if it's above that price, it's not worth buying. If it's below, you know you've got a bargain on your hands. Yeah, it's just a spreadsheet game, basically. Is X bigger than Y? Yeah. Whereas I think the big shift in outlook from Charlie Munger was no longer to focus on value, but focus more on growth, I'd say. Yeah. So Charlie Munger's famous for saying, a great business at a fair price is superior to a fair business at a great price. Which I think is right. I think it's really about total return. And if you look at many companies, they've been expensive for a long time because they've been great companies for a long time. And they've managed to grow their profits very aggressively over a period of many years. It's interesting if you look back to the start of Warren Buffett's career, he was very much in the business of buying cigar butt companies, as he liked to say, which were ones where they were almost dead, but you could get one or two last puffs out of them. And Charlie Munger said, okay, that might work to grow your wealth to a few tens of millions, but you're not going to become a billionaire buying those crap failing companies. And I think that's the fundamental problem. If you've got a cheap company, then the question is always, how long is it going to take before it becomes a reasonably priced company? And is it going to make it? That's the other consideration. And Berkshire Hathaway itself, how that came about, was one of these cigar butt companies, wasn't it? It was a failing textile manufacturer, and Warren Buffett said it was a terrible investment later on. But I guess as a kind of warning to himself, he kept the name. And what's important here is another aspect of the outlook of Charlie Munger. He was always willing to challenge his own ideas and pivot his businesses. 
And clearly that worked very well for them because if they'd have just stuck with the business as it was, Berkshire Hathaway, then they'd have just run the company into the ground. He was very much in favour of lifelong learning, wasn't he? To put a cliche on it. I mean, he said, there is no way you can live an adequate life without making mistakes. And you must try to spend each day trying to be a little wiser than you were when you woke up. And he wrote an entire book about how you can winnow out all of the bad ideas in your head, but also how to make good decisions. I guess he applied that to all of his investments over the course of his life. He was a super rational, smart guy. And he didn't make many mistakes. That was the key, I think, really. If you're trying to build wealth over a long period of time, you're going to have big winners. Just by luck, if you're a big investor, you're going to have big winners. But the key is not to have a big loser at some point, which wipes out like 90% of your wealth. Yeah, I mean, that's the story he's telling in his later writings. But if you look back at his history, there were some mistakes which he made, some pretty bad mistakes early on. Maybe he learned from those, and that's why he came up with his wisdom. But for example, in 1972, he made a 32% loss. In 1974, he made a 31% loss. And this was a business partnership he had with Jack Wheeler. And the company was called Wheeler Munger and Company. And that had to be wound up in 1976 when he was 52. So it's certainly not a trail of endless successes. He certainly made mistakes along the way. But the difference between him and other people, I think, is that he learned from the experiences and how to avoid them in future. Yeah. As he said, you can't live an adequate life without making mistakes. He's not saying he doesn't make mistakes. But also he kept going. I think a lot of people, if you face a massive loss like that and have to wind up your company, it would create self-doubt. You'd think, well, maybe I don't have it. Maybe I can't choose stocks that are going to outperform. But clearly he pulled himself out of that funk and went on to do amazingly well. And that was quite late in life. I think it's kind of incredible that his partnership with Warren Buffett lasted more than 50 years. If you think about like rock groups or whatever, there's not many that last that long. You've got the Rolling Stones and that's about it. Or celebrity relationships. It was interesting that Warren Buffett said, we've never had an argument, but that when we do differ, Charlie often says, Warren, think it over and you'll agree with me because you're smart and I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) That wouldn't be easy, would it? They did have a good double act, though, didn't they? When you saw them on stage together at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, they did play off each other very well. My favourite bit was when he was just sitting there eating his peanut brittle and drinking his Coca-Cola. And then Warren would turn to him and say, do you want to add anything? And he'd say, I have nothing to add to that. Yeah, like half the time he would say that and half the time he would come out with some sort of really provocative, spiky comment about Bitcoin or speculative investments (laughs) or whatever it might be. He must have been great to interview, don't you think? Because he'd have just come up with these beautiful sound bites. Yeah, you get sound bites out of him every day. But I think Warren Buffett really appreciated him because Buffett tried to cultivate this grandfatherly, elder statesman-like, cuddly figure. Whereas he would kind of let Charlie say the stuff that maybe he wanted to say, but was a bit too polite to say. But if you read Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is a collection of his wisdom... He often talks about not being politically correct and about being rational and not accepting commonly accepted wisdoms and always testing those theories that other people have and trying to get to the truth. Because as an investor, if you invest in a company and you believe they're bullshit, then, you know, it's not going to go particularly well. So he always had a way of seeing through the complexity of a problem to something which would turn into a successful investment. 
I think that was kind of the key to his success. He could tell a grand narrative and see where the building blocks fit in along that story. And he could sniff out a rat, like in a split second. One of my favorite quotes from Charlie Munger is, every time you hear EBITDA, just substitute it with bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's uh, that's pretty harsh because EBITDA is pretty useful. It's at the very top of the cash waterfall. So there's not much manipulation ability when you get to EBITDA. Well, it's earnings before dot, dot, dot. Yeah. A lot can be hidden after those dots, presumably. But in that case, I guess you could just look at top line revenue and maybe bottom line profit. Maybe those are the two things which he focused on. He came from an era where price to book was more of a sensible metric, right? But his approach seemed to be that you'd have a very concentrated portfolio. So he'd find certain things which he knew extremely well. So this would be banking companies, food companies, so Coca-Cola, Kraft Foods, and then some banks, Wells Fargo, US Bancorp, Goldman Sachs. And then he'd have a really concentrated portfolio and those things which he understood. And he'd be completely honest. If something was outside his wheelhouse, his circle of competence, as he called it, then he'd simply not invest in it. He did kind of swim against the tide when it came to diversification, certainly. He said, The idea that very smart people with investment skills should have hugely diversified portfolios is madness. It's a very conventional madness, and it's taught in all the business schools, but they're wrong. And I think it's true. I spoke to lots of wealth managers, but also lots of fund managers over the course of my career. And generally, they'd rather fail conventionally than succeed unconventionally, because there's always the risk that you fail unconventionally. And that's the worst, isn't it? Because you can't go, well, I did the same thing that everyone else did. So I think you've got to be willing to be a bit different. And they certainly did that. Their approach to investing was very different from, from other investors. When you read through Charlie's opinion on how he and Warren got so rich, he kind of chalks a lot of it up to other people being stupid and them being patient. Yeah, if you just avoid mistakes, I think that's a key to success. And they had a very successful model, which was to have an insurance company. And in that company, you essentially borrow at 3%. And if you can generate returns much higher than that over the long term, which they did, then the size of the company just grows exponentially. Oh, it certainly did. $1,000 invested in Berkshire Hathaway stock in 1964 would be worth $10 million today. More than $10 million. In fact, the most crazy stat about Berkshire Hathaway is that their stock could drop 99% and still be ahead of the S&P 500 returns since they started in 1965. (laughs) It sounds like that can't be true, but it is. That's a lot of alpha. But I think he also said that it was hard to generate alpha once he grew to a certain size. So by the time they reached the multi-billion dollar size, I think he was saying that you can't really have the growth rates that you had when you could buy $1 million companies. Yeah, definitely. The big companies that will move the needle for you that you might consider investing in. There's so many smart people analysing them that can you really find the mispricings? Because he said, Warren, if people weren't so often wrong, we wouldn't be so rich. But maybe there's fewer people who are wrong when it comes to big companies. But he was also big on the psychology of investing, wasn't he? And he famously said, the big money is not in the buying and selling, but in the waiting. And I think he means that from two angles, doesn't he? Both waiting patiently for the right opportunity to invest, not just throwing your cash at whatever is popular at the moment, but also once you've bought the company you believe in, you know, waiting through the ups and the downs for it to deliver the returns. 
And then being patient. I think that's a really good piece of advice. I think a lot of people have difficulty with that. And you see other assets and investments outperforming your investment. And you think, well, I've made a mistake. I should have been backing the other horse. But clearly, if you're not patient, you'll never see the realization of the returns on the investment you've got. And I love his quote about being patient before you buy, where he says, there are worse situations than drowning in cash and sitting, sitting, sitting. Yeah. And it just reinforces the concept that making a big mistake is the big killer for your portfolio, right? Letting those pitches go past and just waiting for the one that's right in your circle of competence is the way that Warren and Charlie got rich. And you should also learn from other people's mistakes. So he made himself a bit of a, I don't know, mistakeologist where he'd look at other people's mistakes and try and learn vicariously from them. He said, I believe in the discipline of mastering the best that other people have ever figured out. I don't believe in just sitting down and trying to dream it all up yourself. I sought good judgment mostly by collecting instances of bad judgment, then pondering ways to avoid such outcomes. It certainly helps to be in a partnership with someone like Warren Buffett, where I imagine they talked it through extensively and bounced ideas off each other. I think they're on the phone to each other for hours and hours every day, even at the end. Yeah, I mean, if I could have been a fly on the wall, they first met over lunch at the Omaha Club. It just sounds amazing. (laughs) The Omaha Club. I just have this picture of an old gentleman's club, you know, with the wall panels and a glass of port. Apparently they hit it off straight away. Evidently, and they just didn't stop talking after that, I think, about investment. I think after their meeting, Charlie's wife, Nancy, asked him, why are you paying so much attention to that Buffett guy? And Munger replied, you don't understand. That is no ordinary human being. He was right, and it's probably the best decision he's ever made. (laughs) But it's funny how well aligned their investment strategies and philosophies were, and how they worked together to pick these amazing businesses. So, you know, they invested in everything from Coca-Cola to rail lines to Geico, the insurance company, and then later to companies like Apple. And one of the quotes that sums up part of their philosophy, so we said that they went from looking at these cigar butt companies where it would only be for a few years to companies that were going to become massive over decades. And there you really need to focus on moats, isn't it? And companies that can be successful for the long term. And Charlie said, invest in a business that any fool can run because someday a fool will. Yeah, because when they were thinking about investing in a business, they always looked at who was running the business because if they're bad, then there's not much you can do for the company. And there's a great quote from him where he says, it's great to have a manager with a 160 IQ unless he thinks it's 180. Yeah, it's relative, (laughs) isn't it? One of my favourite things he said was, what I needed to get ahead was to compete against idiots. And luckily, there's a large supply. That's the kind of thing Buffett wouldn't say. No, he'd think it. Yeah, he'd think it. It's interesting, Apple was one thing that they didn't buy for a long time because they didn't really understand the business. That was one of the things which they thought was outside their circle of competence. And he always tried to avoid what he called chauffeur knowledge because he had this anecdote about Max Planck, the famous physicist. Have you heard the story? No, I haven't. Go on. I thought I'd heard everything Munger had ever said, but this is a new one to me. So Max Planck was driving around Germany and he was giving lectures on physics because he was a bit of a celebrity. And his chauffeur used to listen to every lecture he gave and actually memorised them, you know, like word for word. And then one night the chauffeur said, can I pretend to be you and give the lecture instead of you? And so Planck thought this was hilarious and said, yeah, go on. (laughs) And he actually, the chauffeur gave a perfect performance, absolutely perfect. 
And of course, the crowd believed it was Max Planck. And then at the end of the talk, one of the physicists in the audience stood up and said a really tough question. And the chauffeur, who had basically no chance of getting it right, said, I'm surprised you're asking such a basic question. So I'm going to ask my chauffeur to respond. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I feel I've lived my life as that chauffeur. So you do have people, certainly in finance, who talk the talk, but you get the feeling their toes aren't really touching the bottom of the pool. It's really hard, isn't it, as someone who doesn't work in the industry, to figure out who those people are and which is which. You kind of have to get to a level of knowledge where you couldn't do it yourself, but you can kind of sniff someone who's talking bullshit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, seasoned fund managers can sniff out bullshit very quickly. I think I'm at that level now where I can kind of sniff out bullshit, even if I don't know what the right answer is. Yeah, I hear the most awful stories about people who have a financial advisor who's basically saying things which are just nonsense, but they believe it because they have faith in their ability to not mislead them. That's not to say that all financial advisors are bad. That's not true. It's just that people who don't know can't really judge for themselves. And if we achieve anything with this podcast, I think it's allowing people to discriminate between those two. Yeah, there were definitely certain aspects of finance which Charlie Munger was pretty dismissive of and thought were large pools of bullshit. So to start, he said, what do you think a derivatives trading desk is? It's a casino in drag. They make the witch doctors look good. What do you think, Roman? You used to work in the industry? Well, it's interesting. If you actually talk to the people on the derivatives desk, they're actually quite humble and realistic about the stuff that they trade. There's no magic to it. You're just taking risk and slicing it up differently. But it blows up the bank from time to time, doesn't it? Well, it's only used to. I think that risk is now much more carefully controlled than it used to be and better understood. Don't they always say that, though, before it blows up again? It's like, we're not going to make the same mistakes again. Well, I think one of the troubles is what Charlie Munger talked about, which is incentives. If you've got a sales staff who are incentivized to sell as much as they can to whoever they can, then eventually someone who doesn't understand the derivative will blow up their institution or your institution. It's all the leverage, isn't it, behind the trades? And Munger, I think, was always super sceptical of leverage. Maybe his most famous quote is, there are only three ways a smart person can go broke. Liquor, ladies, and leverage. I think the first two just started with an L. I think that's right. (laughs) (laughs) He knew how to make a soundbite. I mean, there's one other way I think he added to that list later on in his career. He was not a fan of crypto, was he, Roman? (laughs) It was a shocking thing. Whenever he was asked about it, he was just so scathing. He tried to ramp up his anger every time. And I think it reached a crescendo with Bitcoin is probably rat poison squared. My favourite is if you mix the mathematics of the chain letter or the Ponzi scheme with some legitimate development, like the development of the internet, you're mixing something which is wretched or irrational or has bad consequences with something that has very good consequences. But you know, if you mix raisins with turds, they're still turds. (laughs) Yeah, you can understand why like 40,000 people go to their annual conference to hear this stuff. Oh, yeah. And he must just be brilliant to interview because I know Becky Quick always asks him about cryptocurrency simply to get a rise out of him, I think. Yeah, she smirks as she asks the question. Yeah, she knows what's coming. I mean, it's in a way it's sad that Charlie had to live his last days seeing Bitcoin rallying. 
Yeah, I think he kind of knew what the end game would be, though. Now, it's interesting how they ran Berkshire Hathaway, because it's essentially a, an umbrella company where you've got the Berkshire Hathaway super parent company, and then it's got the subsidiaries. And they were very hands-off with the subsidiaries. But what they were really focused on was ensuring that the incentives of the individual managers and the companies would be aligned with their parent company. And with the shareholders. And with the shareholders, of course. So one of the things Munger used to say is, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And you'd see that repeated everywhere. You look at the fee model for financial advice. Clearly, it's asset gathering that it favours. It's not the best outcome for investors. Yeah, he's right. And the same is true of fund managers. It's essentially an asset gathering business because your revenue is a percentage of the pot that you manage. And once you realise that fund managers, their real job is not really to deliver investment returns, it's to gather assets and come up with these shiny new investments and products they can sell you. It becomes so much clearer what they're doing when you look at their marketing material. And I think Munger kind of summed this up with a fishing analogy. He said, The fishing tackle manufacturer I knew had all these flashy green and purple lures. I asked him, do fish take these? Charlie, he said, I don't sell these lures to fish. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, I'm laughing like uh, Muttley off Dastardly and Muttley. And I don't think that he and Warren really saw themselves as people who were investors. They were more about creating an environment which would nurture businesses. And then the returns would simply come and flow from that philosophy. Yeah, Warren Buffett generally talks about companies, not about stocks. And it's a different mindset, isn't it? Where you're buying a business, you're not buying a little number on a computer screen that goes up and down. And it's kind of the opposite of a quantitative approach to investing, where you just do base it on numbers and algorithms. And I think that's why they focused on businesses they could understand. They could see if it was a good business or not. They definitely looked at the numbers in detail and were value investors, but they put so much importance on whether the management team was good, the company had a moat, it was in a good industry, and yeah, that they understood what it was trying to do. And ultimately, what made them buy Apple was not to do with the technology. That was kind of secondary. It was about the brand. And you just go anywhere in the world and you'll see people cherishing their iPhones. So that's why I think it's all about the brand for them rather than how fast the chip is, or iOS. Yeah, that was definitely one of their best investments, wasn't it? And it's really powered their portfolio over the last, you know, 10 years or whatever since they bought it. It was interesting that when you hear Warren and Charlie speak about mistakes, it's not usually about the bad investments they've made. So they've made mistakes where they overpaid for Kraft, for example. But what they think are much bigger mistakes are the companies that they should have bought that they missed out on. So I know that they had an opportunity to get into McDonald's early on, which they missed. Charlie said their biggest mistake maybe was turning down Walmart very early on. And then more recently, Warren said that they should have seen Google coming because they were buying ads or their companies were buying ads on Google and seeing massive return on investment, as in new customers coming through the Google platform, that they should have realized that and jumped on the bandwagon. So it's like religion where you have sins of commission and sins of omission. They didn't make that many sins of commission where they made big mistakes, maybe a couple of kinds, but they had regrets. Yeah, which is weird, isn't it, when you're a multi-billionaire to have regrets? 
Is it a kind of greed or just a kind of intellectual, oh man, I can't believe I missed that. It was staring me in the face. McDonald's, of course it's going to be huge. <laughs> the thing is, their opportunity set has shrunk so much. So just seeing those few companies that they could have bought, which later would have given them pretty good returns, that must really sting. They haven't got that many companies they can now choose from. But going back to the incentive thing, a lot of people wonder why they kept going once they'd made their first billion. And what's interesting is both Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett are very humble people. They don't have huge houses and lots of bling. For example, Munger has lived in the same house for 70 years in California. Yeah, I think he also had a house in Hawaii and stuff. But yeah. So for example, he said when talking about a fancy house, as he called it, in practically every case, they make the person less happy, not happier. I agree with that. I'm a big fan of tiny houses. If you get a big house, you just fill it with junk. So what was his motivation then? Well, what he said was that, like Warren, I had a considerable passion to get rich, not because I wanted Ferraris, I wanted independence. I desperately wanted it. I thought it was undignified to have to send invoices to other people. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of agree with that as well. It is horrible sending those little (laughs) bills in the mail to people. Because he was a lawyer, he was a lawyer by training and run a legal practice. And by no means did he have an easy start. His family wasn't poor, but in his early adulthood, his son died of leukemia at nine years old. And I read a touching quote from him when he was talking about visiting his son in hospital and walking around the streets afterwards just in tears. And, you know, he overcame a lot. He was divorced and he stuck at it. Yeah, he overcame those early pitfalls and drawbacks in his early life. And he went on to build this incredibly successful company with Warren Buffett. And many people wonder why he lived so long. So he also gave a little insight into the secret of his longevity. And he said, I'm eating this good peanut brittle. That's what you ought to do if you want to live to be 99. I hate to advertise my own product, but this is the key to longevity. I like that. You don't know if he's being sincere or not there. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect not. Now, we can't turn you into Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett, but certainly we can make you a better investor and avoid the really awful pitfalls that many people suffer when they invest. To learn more about how to do that, just join our community. Go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is the Lollapalooza effect? He actually listed this as one of his cognitive biases in Poor Charlie's Almanac. And it's the concept that multiple biases can reinforce one another. So let's say you get a big sell-off in markets. Well, it's not just one cognitive bias which feeds into that and amplifies the fall. It's multiple biases. Yeah, it's kind of the granddaddy of cognitive biases. And I think he came up with this concept because he was a big fan of reading widely and he slogged his way through a load of psychology books and found that they were very good at identifying these discrete different biases, whether it's recency bias or overconfidence bias or anchoring bias. But he thought in investing particularly, these all work together in the same direction at certain times and amplified the effect. And this is what he called the Lollapalooza effect. And he said, the most important thing to keep in mind is the idea that especially big forces often come out of these 100 mental models. When several models combine, you get the Lollapalooza effects. This is when two, three or four forces are all operating in the same direction. And I like the physics analogy, which he then used. Of course, I'm a physicist. He said, and frequently you don't get simple addition. 
It's often like a critical mass in physics, where you get a nuclear explosion if you get to a certain point of mass, and you don't get anything much worth seeing if you don't reach the mass. I think you do see this effect in investing, even if it's just sort of one of Charlie's little quips. It seems to be a real thing, that when you get these massive anomalies or extreme events, it's a confluence of many different factors which just explode. So, for example, in 2008, I remember that there were certain things which happened, and initially it just seemed like a series of unfortunate events. A couple of funds got gated at BNP Paribas. There was some question about the management at some of the big banks. Turned out one of the big managers had been smoking pot. You know, not a big deal. But then things really started to take off. And then once it started, it was unstoppable. And, of course, it had leverage embedded in it as well, that market. And I think the whole subprime loan market, which was underneath all of the blow-up in 2008, that was a Lollapalooza effect. Because you had the people selling the subprime loans to people who couldn't really afford them. And they were incentivized to just make their loans as big as possible and make more and more of them to make their balance sheets big. You had the people taking out the loans to buy houses who were incentivized to just take this credit. If I can get it, I can get a house. I can get two, three, four, five houses. Brilliant. <laughs> I don't have to put any money down. And then you've got the whole market trading them and being underwritten by the government agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who were stamping them as AAA when they were packaged up. So investment bankers thought, oh, we can shuffle these around. Fine. There's no risk here. And all these things together just made it an almighty bubble. So for example, if you think that one of these loans, subprime loans, doesn't make any sense at all, well, you'll also think, well, all of these managers are buying the loans, so they can't all be crazy. I respect these people. Maybe they're right. And it's kind of like a cult. When you have one of these irrational beliefs, it becomes self-reinforcing that everything's okay until the point at which it becomes something that unravels. I know that Charlie did compare the Lollapalooza effect, as he called it, to cult-like beliefs, which require you to have many biases that work together. But he was always keen to stress that it wasn't just a negative thing. You could have a Lollapalooza which was self-reinforcing to a positive effect. And I think he even called Berkshire Hathaway one of those things. And I think he said that to overcome a really hard problem that a lot of people have failed at, you need to aim for a Lollapalooza effect, a positive one. And he used the example of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you think about what Alcoholics Anonymous does, it uses several biases to help people. You've got social proof, so you can see other people overcoming this problem. And you can see, oh, it works. It might work for me. You've got peer pressure. So you're opening up and everyone's trying to force you in the right direction. And you've got accountability. So well-designed systems can make use of this effect to solve really hard problems. And Munger himself said that it was good to follow a checklist, and that ensures that you don't get sucked into one of these downward spirals when everyone just reinforces other people's mistakes. Number one on that list is think independently. Yeah, that seemed to be his answer for a lot of questions, really, was to take a multidisciplinary approach, be wide-read in economics, mathematics, psychology, yeah. and hopefully together these things will help you spot the errors in your thinking rather than just, you know, re reading market news every day, all day. And following the herd. And he said, I consider it a moral duty to become as rational as possible. I'm sure you can sympathise with that view, Roman. Yeah, absolutely. And here I'd defer to my other hero, who's Mr. Spock, about staying logical. Yeah, Charlie prioritised logic. And what's slightly unusual about him, because we talk about optimism, it's often 
the best way to approach investing because the market drifts up over time. He didn't see himself as an optimist. He said, is there such a thing as a cheerful pessimist? That's what I am. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.